0: bonus tracks is the official blog of spotlight on available at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog there you'll find additional artist interviews music commentary and more have a look Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Downtempo electronic music godfather and Thievery Corporation co-founder Eric Hilton. Eric joined us a few weeks after the September release of Corazon Kintsugi, his album with longtime Thievery vocal collaborator Natalia Clavier. Eric produced, arranged, and played the majority of the instruments on this nine-track album which fuses elements of dub, trip-hop, bossa nova, vintage film music, and electronica with Natalia's emotive Spanish and Portuguese vocals. We talk about the record, other aspects of Eric's musical life, and his engagement with the city of Washington, D.C. Corazon Kintsugi is out on Eric's own Montserrat House imprint and is available everywhere you get your music right now. I've spent the last several days immersed in the new record and uh, it's it's really so beautiful. I won't blow too much smoke at you, but the album has this element to it that I in particular appreciate, which is it sort of borrows from ambient music in that I can put it on and just let it enhance my environment and live around it. But it also has the ability where you can sit down and pay attention to it and let it unravel and really listen. It's a really beautiful quality to have both of those things,
1: and so congratulations you've made a beautiful record thank you uh, i'm I'm glad you made that observation because that is a goal of mine when I make records like this same with the Avery Corporation in a lot of cases and it's a nice challenge so I'm glad you think it worked. It's interesting that you say that
0: because I think people tend to think of what I'll call electronic music or or this type of music very. Binary, right? It's either meant to be in the fore or it's meant to be put on in the background. And I find that that's that's rarely the case. Even with the so-called ambient music, there's so much going on. It's usually so much richer and
1: more engaging than it's often marketed as. I agree. I think that a lot of very good ambient music just requires you to listen a little harder. It's all there. The emotions and the what music does to you is there in the ambient music as well when it's good. There's a lot as it relates to your musical
0: journey. I'm hoping we can unpack a little later in the conversation, but I'd love to stay with the new record for a bit. It seems that over the years, you've had a very symbiotic, I've seen it called mentor muse relationship with Natalia, going back to you producing her record um, a, a little while ago now. Could you talk a little bit about how you first became aware of her? How did she get into your
1: sort of musical radar? I met Natalia through her then boyfriend Federico Obel, a very talented songwriter who we used to do a lot of work with on 18th Street Lounge music. I produced his first record with Rob, my partner in Thievery Corporation, and then I produced, I believe, two more records for him. He's just a friend, and he's very talented. And Natalia was kind of there in the background a little bit, and. I didn't think of her necessarily as somebody I would work with in the future because she was working with Federico. At a certain point, Federico actually encouraged her to do a solo record, and she asked me to produce it, and I had a little bit of time on my hands. I I took that task. She gave me her acapellas, and I just played with them on my laptop and put some ideas together, and then we hit the studio uh, in D.C., which was the Thiever Corporation studio. I think we recorded over, like, maybe three weeks or so. And Nectar was the result. And I was just very impressed with her songwriting and her singing and her malleability in the studio. She could really change on a dime to kind of suit a certain mood. And I thought that was a great quality of hers. If you can articulate what it is about her that inspires you to keep returning to the collaboration. I think simply she's just one of the most talented singers that I know personally. So we tend to, things just happen in our lives, right? We meet people and they come into our lives. She's toured with Thievery Corporation for probably over a decade. And we've been friends for a long time. So it was just very natural for us to eventually work together. I just think she has an incredible way of singing at, at a level two in terms of intensity or a level 10. Yeah, you know, she can do yeah. either. And that's pretty rare in a singer. If you think of Hope Sandoval from Mazzy Star, she's really kind of appealing singer, but I've never heard her really belt, right? I don't think she does that. And usually it's one or the other. And Natalia can do both. In reading about how this record
0: came together, I'll, par- I'll badly paraphrase a quote from you, but essentially, You had realized you had some music that would benefit from vocals i wonder like what specifically does that mean when you're putting a record together are vocals another instrument for you as a producer are they more weighted than that because of the human breath the human element how do you think about a vocal
1: line beyond just a melodic delivery device (laughs)
0: yeah
1: that's an interesting question I tend to make mostly instrumental music because I really enjoy that. And the challenge for me is to make a piece of music that you can enjoy as an instrumental, which I find very challenging. Sometimes Mm. you just don't feel like you got there. You you feel like you have this great foundation, but it, it needs a human voice. It needs to, it needs a collaborator who's a vocalist to take it somewhere else. It's not like a next level per se. It's more like a different, an off-ramp, and you just want to go somewhere else with it. So I keep two types of sketches that I'm doing. One that I think, okay, purely this is great instrumental, and another one where I'll save it for a vocalist. And that's just the way I work. Do you write
0: the melody lines on those non-vocal versions? Are you playing a melody on another instrument, or do
1: you simply hand it to Natalia and she delivers melody? In Natalia's case, like on Corazon Consugri, I, I wrote like the keyboard melodies, and I think I wrote almost all the keyboard melodies on her record. But I did not write the vocal melodies; she wrote the vocal melodies. On my instrumental stuff that I release, I generally write all the melodies on instruments. I push at that not to not to try to get you to deconstruct how your creativity works, <laughs>
0: um, but specifically with that track the two words being from different cultures even just reading them and having the consonant sound in them they're strong words but mm-hmm. they flow so beautifully melodically like the way she sings the chorus hook with those two songs it's really beautiful and it, it was really unexpected it's a, it was really not to make too much of it but it was really a striking way for the record to open and after listening to it several times i find that vocal melody to be quite an earworm. It's like, it's been with me for days, just looping
1: in my, in my brain. It kind of had to be the first track because in a, a lot of ways, it's the most dramatic of all the songs on, on the record. It just had to lead off the record. And then of course the record kind of gets a little bit more lighthearted from there for the most part. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's a really powerful track. I, that And also just lyrically, I know that that song means a lot to Natalia personally. I think it describes maybe the last two years of her life, if if not other periods of her life. We also have experienced the highs and the lows of of Thievery Corporation, and she's no longer on the road with Thievery Corporation. And I I think it's now a, a, a very good thing for her, but it was a hard transition. Doing this record actually was part of making that transition. It was just sort of a friend to friend kind of thing. Like, hey, let's make some art. Was it a, a healing opportunity? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. For her, I, I know it was. Yeah.
0: for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of kintsugi, it's it's stunningly beautiful as a, as even a concept. The idea that, you know, to be a little didactic for a moment for people who aren't familiar, it's the notion in Japanese pottery of looking at the broken or flawed piece of work and seeking to repair it actually with gold to to highlight the flaw or to I'm not articulating. it Well, I apologize, but it's in a sense, the flaw becomes the most beautiful part of the artwork you draw. You don't seek to hide it,
1: right? Yeah, I think you described it well. It's a really great metaphor for life in general. You learn as you go along and those repair marks of gold holder are almost like the lessons as we go along. We learn and we, we get stronger, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And to translate it to other forms
0: or specifically to music, it it reminds me very much of that. And again, to badly paraphrase, the notion that Miles Davis always talked about of there being no wrong notes or no bad notes. And it was really about what you played before it and what you played after it to give it that context and to make make maybe the bad note be the right note. It's very punk rock, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Coming from Miles Davis. It's kind of cool. Yeah, he might have been one of the original punks. Yeah, <laughs> I would say he's kind <laughs> of punk rock jazz artist. Kind of, he's kind of funk. The other thing about this record is that and certainly even in just that the title track and in the and in, in that melody, you know, the things we've talked about so far, it seems like a really interesting meta summation of a lot of your work in music in terms of being cross cultural some of the other things we talked about the challenge of instrumental versus lyrical music or or vocal music. As it relates to having a vocalist, what what role does the lyrical theme play for you? For lack of a better way to say it, do you care? Does it influence you? Do you interact with it? Is that like somebody else's thing to care about?
1: Well, I do care. This one was so personal. I didn't co-write any of the songs lyrically with Natalia because she was more than capable of expressing what she wanted to express. So in this case... I just trusted her a hundred percent and she just somehow managed to express deep emotions, but in a very melodic way, which is of course, that's the top of, of, of the game kind of performance. And uh, she just did a fantastic job. Now as a secondary, um, I mean, I guess if it sounds good, I'm happy. As long as the lyrics are not, you know, silly, right? Everything has to sound good, right? That's, that's that's sort of the baseline requirement. If it sounds good and there's some really good intensity in the vocals and they really mean something, that's just a bonus. Something else that really struck me about her vocal work on this record is that I could
0: imagine it in other languages. like I could imagine an Asian voice or an Asian articulation, certainly the Spanish and Portuguese, but I actually couldn't really imagine it in English. It's, it's, it's interesting. I I don't know why it struck me that way to, to hear it. I think the, the, the melody of the actual language she's singing in, even to the extent where I could almost imagine if it were like, say the Cocteau Twins or, or, you know, a made up language. It was, it was, it was so melodically rich that it I appreciated not being able to understand the lyrics, as bizarre
1: as that is, given how important the lyrics are to her. <laughs> no, that's not very bizarre. I've heard people say that before, that they, if a song is in French or Spanish, they can almost listen to it in the background because the actual words aren't distracting them. I, I think there's definitely something to that. And I also think that a singer like Natalia, who speaks you know, Spanish as her first language, sings so much better in Spanish. She is a great singer in English, but in Spanish, she is just, she's uh, another level. It was great to do the record in Spanish and Portuguese to not touch the English language. Yeah. I think that notion's been rattling around in
0: my head a little bit because I had Namal from Dengue Fever on recently. And on their new record, pretty much all of her lead vocals are in Khmer, and she stays away from English more on this record. Some of the background vocals are are English and harmonies and stuff, but she her vocal performance is in her native language. It's something that stands out about the record. You can hear the emotion. You can hear her comfort. Really, is is what it comes down to. Is the her voice is not impeded by. I think there. I think it takes out a. Uh, now, obviously, I'm I'm saying this on her behalf, but I think it takes out a certain level of having to think you know, she's not having to translate or it's very powerful. If you haven't heard the record, it's worth a listen. I'm definitely going to hear it. It's always wonderful to hear an artist so far into their career to still be evolving. That's exciting. They're not making the same record over and over. And I I love that. That's cool. Yeah, they're very good. I I have a few of their records. I really like them. There's a theme, obviously, that runs through so much of your career, and it's something I, I so admire about what you've built, which is this notion of independence, right? Like the controlling the businesses and your life as a as a business person in multiple areas, especially in the era that you really emerged and grew in, like the, the way the supply chains and the value of music and all those things have changed. What's your self-conception of being an independent music artist? And what has it afforded you that you might not have otherwise had, or how has it contributed to here we are talking, you know, pretty much 30 years into a, a career. How important has that been? This this notion that you've sort of both even with thievery that, that it's just been, it's
1: been you guys, it's been you, it's been your wiliness and your independence. I think it was vital to the longevity of Thievery Corporation. I think if we had taken some of the offers that we had early on. I don't think we would have lasted more than a few more years just because we would have actually been working for someone else. That's what I've noticed with bands that signed to major labels, particularly back then. It really felt like they were an employee of the machine of the major label, not to criticize the major label so much because I know that they're investing a lot of money and time and effort into promoting those bands. But they're calling the shots, is what I saw. And Rob and I grew up in the DC area and were obviously very in, inspired by Discord Records and Ian Mackay, who is a neighbor of mine. And I see him from time to time. And he's an idol. He always makes me a little nervous when I see him. And I tell him, God, man, my idol is crazy. But they were you know, obviously very independent, DIY, punk label. And to this day, they operate that way. And it was the only way for us. We had considered a couple offers, one from Chris Blackwell, which was a very nice offer, and another one, but we just couldn't do it. We had to take breaks when we want to take breaks and tour when we want to tour and record the records our way and just be in total control. It it just felt right to us. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break.
0: If you're interested in contributing to bonus tracks, the official blog of this podcast, visit spotlightonpodcast.com and click call for submissions. That's where we post details on what we're currently looking for and how to be considered. And now back to Spotlight On. It's really interesting to look back on, especially that, that sort of that turn of the century era when I think about things like Moby's Play and when Trip Hop had its commercial moment, I can only imagine what it must have been like to say no, right? Like there had to be some moments where
1: just the money itself must have seemed pretty real. You know, it seemed real, but it's interesting because we decided to actually be a record label and release our own music and find a distributor and do all those things. We actually saw what business was being done. So when somebody offered us an advance and a deal, it didn't look that great. It looked okay. It sounded good. But we realized that if we just held on to our masters and owned everything in the long run, we would do much better. Maybe they would have promoted us heavier and, but we weren't really looking for that. Like I always said, we wanted to grow like a bonsai tree. We just slowly and strong. And we have a very strong fan base, even to this day as Thievery Corporation. I think it's because we just grew at a, at a normal pace and it was organic. It wasn't heavily advertised or anything. People were actually able to just discover Thievery Corporation on their own, which is a cool thing. Yeah. So it was vital for us to go down the path that we went. I was going to make a comment
0: that I, I, I'm i not going to, I'm going to say it, but I'm going to loosely stand by it, which is <laughs> uh, because maybe it'll be fun to to bat around a little. And that was, it seems a little bit of the time in terms of emerging from and certainly observing what was happening in the sort of punk alternative DIY world, coupled with the DJ rave dance music scene, this ability to sort of find your audience let your audience find you but also understand from the business side that what a major label might be able to do in terms of taking you to let's say millions and millions you could actually have a sustainable career and lifestyle maybe with the hundreds of thousands you you know the the piece you keep and and the part of yourself you don't sell yes yeah. <laughs> and not even to be metaphysical but just in terms of like you said your ability to produce when you when the muse strikes you or to if you want to put out 10 records this year and no records next year, you have that,
1: you have that right. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty much it. That's what we did. And that's why we did it just to have that kind of control and not really to answer to anyone other than me and Rob. That was a heck of a luxury. Has your relationship with sort of the, the live performance part of being a
0: music artist has changed? How do you think about the live presentation of your most current work, this album in particular? And and coming from sort of a DJ perspective or or, or world, is that okay? Like let somebody present your music as part of a set or do you... Mm. I'm very curious about that sort of that decision to opt out increasingly from being the first person presenter of your music live. And I'm just really curious about what that how that fits in now as you continue to create. You're talking more about
1: Thievery Corporation then. Yeah. And like, will you perform this music live? It's funny. Natalia would would love to. And uh, we've talked about maybe doing a, a couple shows just for fun, like in New York and uh, maybe a couple other cities. I am so focused on making music that any time that I have to take away from making music it, it frustrates me i'm just a serial creator of music and i realized that about myself a while ago but even more so i'm aware of it now and i'm just always on to the next always on to the next i mean my my next album is done but it'll come out in february it's all instrumental and even the one after that is finished and i just enjoy making the music it's i always tell friends it's if you're a painter and you just love to paint. And then you have to go to the gallery shows, which is the live show, right? And yeah. you have to recreate painting in front of the audience. It feels like that to me. As much as I love connecting with the audience, and I love the fact that there is an audience, it's a beautiful thing. I, I just want to make that art. It, it's it's what I'm driven to do. And it's interesting because Rob and I are very different on that front. And he he loves the live show. You know, I mean, he just literally lives for it. So we're at polar opposites, which is funny. He wants to continue playing thievery, I think, for quite a while. I have the luxury of going and participating when I want to, but it's just not my calling. I was always more of the studio guy. To go back to something we were just
0: talking about, those decisions years and years ago, in a way, have afforded that luxury, right? Like you're not the type of artist who needs to go on the road to live. And I don't mean live like to get your
1: life calling. I mean, to, to live, <laughs> to eat. <laughs> right. It's interesting. I guess now, if we were just starting out, we, we would be, you know, it's, uh, we were fortunate to be in the music business when it it was better. Right. And it, it was much better before downloads and streamings in terms of rewarding the artist you know, yeah. for their work. So we were very fortunate. But yeah, the record music, it is valuable. And over time, it, it retains a really high value. Just two ways of looking at it. I think whatever you're inclined to do and whatever your passion is, what you should do. I just never felt like I was part of a band because I wasn't. We created a band of incredible musicians to perform Thievery Corporation with us. But I'm a producer, DJ, artist you know that's that's what I am (laughs) not not entirely unreminiscent from like mid-70s Steely Dan (laughs) yeah (laughs) I really it's funny I'm not a massive Steely Dan fan by each uh, stretch but what they went through I can completely empathize yeah I I like
0: to read about or, or hear them talk about the pressures of that era in particular because the model was so much make a record go on the road come back from being off the road, make a record, go on the road. And I, don't, I think it's hard now for people to really appreciate the will it took. I mean, and, and they were lucky that they were making commercially successful records. So they had the clout to be able to stand hard against that. But that was not an easy choice at that particular time in the music business.
1: Yeah, it's true. I watched a documentary about them, and I think that they were so obsessive about the quality of what they were doing in the studio, that they, at least one of them was terrified of the live just because of the lapses in quality that would naturally ensue from in a live show. I don't think they could handle it. They wanted their music to sound a certain way, and they just couldn't do it live.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think we're relatively in the same age range. To talk to people of our generation who went to shows 35, 40 years ago and you often didn't know what you were going to get in terms of like sound reproduction. And like, I you know, I can remember going to big concerts and leaving saying, man, that was sounded awful. And now it's like you go to a show and pretty much any from a club on up to a out in a field or a stadium, that's not something you really reckon with anymore. It's it's incredible how the technology has allowed the presentation of a live show to actually at least, you know, it's going to sound good.
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, so many stick out for me, but I did see New Order in the early 80s, maybe 80, 81 or something like that. And they were awful. They were literally awful. And they're one of my favorite bands. And it's funny, though, now if you go see them, they sound incredible. So... <laughs>
0: I've always been curious a bit about your musical journey because you draw from so much, right? Uh, music from around the world and the way you've always emphasized bringing together the strands that 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 serve the composition or that inspire the composition and and not really worrying about genre per se. It's something I've always loved as a listener, right? It'd be, you know, the bottomless well that is music. It's one of the most fun things about being a music lover is that you can just keep going forever sometimes even within one genre, never mind across genres. Yeah. Still blows my mind the amount of reggae music that was produced in like a eight year period on this one little island, but incredible. How did your mind get open? So you start with whatever it was you were into as a young kid, as a young adult, but what was the beginning of the journey to realize there were these other musics? Was there a mentor? Was there a zine? can you identify moments where you were like, holy cow, what is this other thing?
1: Yeah, I, c- I can. Um, well, I was lucky to grow up with a great local radio station, WHFS, which was very free form. It was right outside of DC, it served as DC market. And they played a lot of eclectic music that was heading into the new wave era, which was my high school years. And There was a record store yesterday and today, which is where Discord started. The whole punk label was started out of that record store. So I would go there and spend basically all my money that I could muster up on records. At a certain point, I realized that I really liked the two-tone records and I liked some neo-Latin things and So I liked a lot of different things. I liked electronic stuff, but I really liked things that were based on maybe older musical forms. And I had never even heard of ska, like real ska, right? I just discovered the specials and the two-tone stuff. And then that kind of hit me to the original stuff. And then I just started to go backwards. And, you know, I got really into jazz and bossa nova because I liked the first everything but the girl record and, you know, wanted to see where these influences came from. And sure enough, there was that deep well. Yeah. I'm still always just like looking back because there is so much great music from the past. Sadly, I miss a lot from the current music, you know, just cause I'm, I'm looking back all the time. Yeah. That's kind of how I got into all the different types of music. And of course I like, I just love music from any culture, any place. What's the common theme for you? Are you a rhythm guy? Are you a melody guy? Or is that overly reductive? Oh, I'm I'm like an everything guy. Probably my strong suits are like bass lines and rhythms, but I I love melody too. It depends on the mood. You mentioned Jamaican music. Like one of my favorite musical formats is old Rocksteady. I love that era, Um, early, early reggae. But it, it just depends on the mood. I'll work on all kinds of music, and in one day I'll switch gears sometimes. It's one of the things that stands out for me about this
0: new album, which is you mentioned everything but the girl. And I had a moment when I was listening to it this morning where air popped into my head. I think I heard a bass lick that that sort of I was like, oh, that that almost sounded like an air sample. And, uh, you know, I'm always hesitant to tell an artist when I hear something in their music that's reminiscent, because I, you know, I understand as a listener that it's all one atmospheric river <laughs> and yeah. the music you know music gets plucked from it and gets added to it and so i i never view that as a deficiency or a whatever like to me that's a positive like it's all a lineage of music that's being added to and drawn from something that struck me about this album was how it's so rooted in all these things you talk about the musics you love the musics you've played with over the years but it's additive it's additive. And I think that that's something I really appreciate in what you and, and what you've done with Thievery as well over the years is that it's been very much an acknowledgement of lineage. And the music and the musicians I talk to here a lot often do that. Sometimes it's not reflected in their music, just in the attitudes or in the conversation. You realize they, they see themselves in these lineages. Other times it's much more explicit. But yeah. I think that's also another very special element of what music artists get to do, it's very rare that someone is just on an island and they have no, <laughs> no connections to anything else. Yeah. What's your take on that? What's your feeling about the importance of that? You know, are you
1: a are you in a musical community? I'm actually not currently feeling like I'm in a musical community because I've kind of decamped into my own little world of yeah. trying to be completely self-sufficient. I mean, obviously with Natalia, we made the record together, but a lot of times I'm just making musical sketches that will hopefully become instrumental songs that I'll put out. Yeah, I don't know. I'm very much like an introvert in that way. I'm sort of an introvert extrovert, so I can go either way. But when it comes to the art making, I like to be very uh, introverted. But, you know, I have friends in the music industry and we, we talk sometimes, but we don't like share secrets or plan things or anything like that. It's just, we're all just working independently. That's really incredible that after, I think, a career that I would say almost not
0: defined, but certainly marked by collaborations of all kinds. So many musicians have come in and out of this orbit that you and Rob created. So many people, so many players, so many styles that in this moment, that's sort of where you are. And I understand <laughs> that. It may not speak to a moment five years from now. It may not. It's just a moment, even if it feels like it's the new paradigm. What got you there? Is it just a, is it a need for control? Is it, was it the pandemic and isolation? Was it something bigger? How do you arrive
1: at this moment? I think it's more of just challenging myself. I worked with a partner with Rob and I think that's really the best way for both him and I to work. We're by coastal. So we can't really work remotely very well. It just doesn't yeah. feel right. You kind of have to be in the same room. You have to spend a lot of time together. We just don't we just don't spend enough time together because of very busy lives and things like that. So, you know, I'll just stay up late at night making music or steal time during the day or just try to figure it out. And I just found that I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the challenge of having to do everything, the bass line, the keyboards, uh, you know, all the beats, the rhythms, the arrangement of the song. It's just it's just been incredibly challenging. I think I'm getting much better at what I do just working alone because I, I have to figure things out. So that's what I've been experiencing lately. And, um, yeah, I like it. You know, it doesn't mean I'll do it forever, but it just works right now. That might be a great way for us to seg out of our
0: time together. I think that's a great summation. I just want to thank you again for making time and, and thank you again for the record. It's a privilege to be able to talk to artists like you, and it's my driving force for continuing to do this. It's a great way to, to hear such diverse and interesting music. And you've added another, another brick to that for me. So
1: thank you. Thank you. That was a great conversation. You have a great podcast, so it's my pleasure to be on it. Thank you so much, Eric Hilton.
0: And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by QBurn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, our Bonus Tracks blog, our online store, our mailing list, And to make a donation to support our production, visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.